Ellen Satters, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, broadcasting live from Coronado, California, where the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the children, they're all above average. Just ask any parent. Eb is cuddled up in the KVOI luxurious broadcast center all by his lonesome, along with producer Tom looking in on the other side of the glass. Thanks for tuning in to a special 9-11 Memorial Edition of Inside Track. Eb? Hey, at the bottom of the hour. Oh, by the way, uh, welcome to day 571 of the 15-day Flatten the Curve. At the bottom Thank of the you. hour... We're going to talk to best-selling author Susan Ronald about her newest book, The Ambassador, Joseph P. Kennedy at the Court of St. James. But first, let's take care of some business. This portion of the show brought to you by our friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. They have some of the best surplus steel materials in stock right now, ready to help you with your next project. Bruce plans to buy some rebar from Jamie for an Acatillo fence at his new casa. Call Jamie at 520-209-1576. We also love Eric Rudin and his professional team at Essential Pest. His team handles everything from bugs and pests to vermin and termites. Eric's team of professionals have been safeguarding Arizona homes and businesses since the 70s. Call Essential Pest at 520-886-8039. And now, it's a perfect time to call Corazon Cabinets to get a jump on your next home improvement project. No supply and chain problems at Corazon. Joy and Ellie have their 6,000 square foot stacked to the ceiling with beautiful cabinets ready for your next project. Call and speak to the design professionals at 488-2266. These are all great locally owned run businesses that you can depend on. Bruce and I do, so should you. We've got an excellent show for you. Thanks for joining us. Bruce. 20 years ago today, we all know that we woke up to news of a commercial airliner which had crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. At first, most Americans who saw the telecast hoped this was only a monumental accident. 17 minutes later, by the time everyone had tuned into the news, we instantly understood we were at war when they witnessed a second jet crashing into the South Tower and the largest mass murder, live mass murder in our history. We will always recall the pandemonium when a third commercial jet crashed into the Pentagon, mass deaths and injuries, incredible carnage of broken buildings, but not a broken nation. 20 minutes later, United 93 was one of the few commercial flights still in the air headed at that time for the U.S. Capitol to complete these terrorist dream of bringing down American dominance in business, the American military and the American governmental institutions all in one morning. When Flight 93 ended suddenly at 10.03 a.m. local in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, the battle to defend America was underway. In our short time available, let's recall the souls of those who lost on that flight, fighting for their lives, and also fighting for all Americans in the original casualties of war. Eb? Yeah, the Flight 93 crew, Captain Jason M. Dahl, pilot, United Airlines. United Airlines Captain Jason M. Dahl, 43, rearranged his September 11th flight schedule 
so he could take his wife to London for their upcoming fifth wedding anniversary. When he boarded Flight 93 that morning, he carried with him, as he always did, a small box of rocks, a long-ago gift from his son. After 16 years with United, Dahl was a standards captain, training and evaluating pilots in addition to flying assigned trips. <laughs> First Officer Leroy Homer, pilot, United Airlines. Leroy Homer... 36, the first officer of Flight 93, grew up on Long Island, New York, with a love for planes and flying, earning his private pilot's license at 16. After graduating from the U.S. Air Force Academy at, in 1987, Leroy served in Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and later flew humanitarian missions to Somalia. His career with United Airlines began in 1995, while he continued serving in the U.S. Air Force Reserves. Lorraine G. Bay, Flight Attendant, United Airlines. <laughs> Philadelphia native Lorraine G. Bay, 58, loved her job as a United States or a United Airlines flight attendant. Although she was one of United's most senior flight attendants, Lorraine preferred to be uh, working in the coach section. She mentored young flight attendants and never failed to remember her co-workers and family with special cards and unique gifts. Two of Bay's colleagues received cards postmarked September 11th, 2001, indicating that they were mar uh, mailed that morning. <laughs> Sandy Waugh Bradshaw, flight attendant, United Airlines. 38-year-old Sandy Waugh Bradshaw, a native of Climax, North Carolina, always wanted to be a flight attendant. After 11 years in the field, she was now flying only two trips per month, allowing her time at home with her kids and husband, a pilot for U.S. Airways. Bradshaw called United Airlines to report the emergency and describe the terrorists. She then called her husband. He recalls saying Sandy said that she and others on the airplane were boiling water to throw at the hijackers. As the call ended, she reported that everyone was running up to first class. <laughs> Wanda... Anita Green, flight attendant, United Airlines. Wanda Anita Green, 49, was flight attendant with United Airlines for 29 years, fulfilling a dream of flying and seeing the world. According to her mother, Wanda was one of the first African-American flight attendants with United Airlines. Wanda was a dedicated mother to her two children, a deacon in her church, and active in her local community of Linden, New Jersey. C.C. Ross Lyles, flight attendant, United Airlines. Just nine months before September 11, 2001, C.C. Ross Lyles, 33, was working a police, as a police officer in her hometown of Fort Pierce, Florida. During the hijacking of Flight 93, she phoned her husband, reaching the answering machine, telling him, I hope to be able to see your face again, honey. I love you. Goodbye. In a second call five minutes before the crash, the couple spoke and prayed together. <coughs> Deborah Jacobs Welsh, age 49, flight attendant, United Airlines. As a purser on Flight 93, Deborah Jacobs Welsh, 49, was assigned to first class and was responsible for overseeing the flight attendants. She was compassionate and thoughtful, delivering leftover airline meals and warm winter clothing to homeless people in Manhattan neighborhood where she lived with her husband. Bruce? Here are the passengers, here are the passengers of United 93. Christian Adams, 
Export Director, German Wine Institute, a Fulbright Grant recipient with a well-regarded uh, figure in the wine industry, Christian Adams, was en route to San Francisco on September 11th for an event promoting German wines. A colleague from the German Wine Information Bureau in New York recalled Adams' thoughtful, quiet manner and depth of knowledge of the wine business. Adams was survived by his wife and two children. Todd Beamer, account manager, Oracle Corporation. Todd M. Beamer, 32, an account manager for Oracle, a computer software company, left his Cranberry, New Jersey home on September 11th for a one-day business trip to San Francisco. Beamer was raised in the Chicago area and graduated from Wheaton College and earned an MBA at DePaul University. Caught up in the hijacking of Flight 93, Beamer tried to call his wife by airphone. When the call was not connected, Beamer dialed zero and reached an airphone customer service rep who says that Beamer calmly provided critical information about events on the plane and relayed messages for his pregnant wife and two children. At Beamer's request, the representative joined him in praying the Lord's Prayer. At the end of the call, she says she heard him say to others on the plane, Are you ready? Let's roll. Anthony, Alan Anthony Beaton, attorney. Beaton practiced law in his native New Zealand, later working as a prosecutor for, for Scotland Yard and as a securities and antitrust attorney. Alan moved to Oakland, California, where he found his niche in environmental lit, uh, litigation. On September 11th, Alan was, Alan was flying to California to handle his case. Beaton was survived by his wife, Anne, two sons. Mark Bingham, advertising executive. Mark was establishing a new office on the East Coast for his California-based public relations firm. On the morning of September 11, Bingham overslept and nearly missed the flight. He was the last passenger to board. During the hijacking, he phoned his mother reporting that his plane had been hijacked and relaying his love for her. Deora Francis Bodley, student at Santa Clara University. Deora Bodley of San Diego was the youngest person aboard Flight 93. A junior at Santa Clara University, she was studying French and psychology, aspiring to become a child psychologist. Remembered as independent and introspective, her mother has been an advocate for the Shanksville 9-11 Memorial. Marion Britton, Assistant Regional Director, U.S. Census Bureau. Britain's knacks for engaging strangers in conversation launched her 21-year career at the U.S. Census Bureau. As a census enumerator, she sometimes encountered families in need, and after hours, she delivered food and clothing to them. During the hijacking, Britain phoned a longtime friend and tearfully told him it felt like her plane was turning and was going to crash. Thomas Burnett, Jr., CEO, Thuratech Corporation. Burnett had spent most of his past six weeks traveling in his role as chief operating officer at Thoratech, a manufacturer of heart pumps for patients awaiting transplants. Tom's four phone calls to his wife aboard hijacked Flight 93 provided vital information to the passengers and crew and revealed the plans they were making to take back the plane. She recalls Tom saying, we have something to do. We can't wait for the authorities. It's up to us. I think we can do it. William Cashman, iron worker, age 60 of West New York, New Jersey. He was traveling aboard Flight 93 with his longtime friend, Patrick Joseph Driscoll to go hiking in Yosemite National Park. Cashman was proud of the fact that during his 40 years with the Iron Workers Local 46, he helped to construct the World Trade Center. 
He is survived by his wife of 31 years. Georgine Rose Corrigan, antique jewelry dealer. She was a well-known antiques and collectible dealer, designed jewelry, and developed a line of Christmas ornaments decorated with floral, uh, uh, tr tropical flowers. Friends say she was crazy about roses. On September 11, she was on her way from East Coast, uh, from an East Coast buying trip and a visit with her brother in New Jersey. Patrick Cushing from New Jersey Bell, retired from New Jersey Bell, uh, raised five children in Bayonne, New Jersey, and was widowed in 1988. She held season tickets for the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, loved movies, ballet, and dance, and played mahjong every week. Her family remembers that she never had a bad word to say and remained upbeat, no matter what the circumstances. Joseph DeLuca. Joseph DeLuca. Go ahead. Business system specialist. Joseph DeLuca, 52, a lifetime resident of northern New Jersey, was passionate about sports car racing, editing a sports car newsletter, and loved driving his yellow Morgan Roadster. During the hijacking of their flight, Joe telephoned his father to say goodbye. He survived by a sister. Patricia Driscoll, age 70, retired executive director, Bell Communications. When, when Patrick Driscoll, the, uh, the Malapan, New Jersey resident, was the son of Irish immigrants, grew up in Manhattan and served four years aboard the U.S. Uh, Navy destroyer in the Korean War. He earned an engineering degree from New York University. He and his wife were married 42 years and had four children. Edward Porter Felt. Edward Felt of Matawan, New Jersey, was known as a problem solver in his job as a computer engineer at BEA Systems, a software firm, and had been awarded two patents in the field of encryption technology. En route to San Francisco on a last-minute business trip on September 11, Felt's response to the hijacking was to place a call on his cell phone. Just five minutes before the crash, he dialed 911 reporting hijacking in progress, identified himself and his flight. Jane Folger, age 73, a retired bank officer, strong, resilient. Folger raised six children, then lost a son in Vietnam, another son to AIDS. She was experienced a painful divorce, but remained active and independent. Jane knew and loved New York City, traveling there weekly and introducing her six grandchildren to her favorite stores, theater, museums, and cultural events. Colleen Frazier, age 51. Colleen was a nationally known advocate for the disabled. Colleen helped draft the Americans with Disabilities Act. She carried a tiny copy of the Constitution with her to encourage the disabled to become their own advocates. Advocates. She survived by a sister. Andrew Sonny Garcia, owner of Cinco Group. On September 11th, Dorothy Garcia says she heard her husband Andrew utter just one word before his telephone call from Flight 93 was disconnected. Dorothy. Andrew was a practical joker. Um, Sonny, as he was nicknamed, savored family life and exuded deep sense of spirituality and concern for others. Andy ran an industrial product supply company, Cinco Group, with his wife. Though he never earned a pilot's license, he was fascinated with aviation and airplanes. On September 11, he was returning home from a meeting in New Jersey. Jeremy Logan Glick, sales manager. On September 11, Jeremy Logan Glick reluctantly left his Hewitt, New Jersey home on business as a sales manager with, with Vividence Incorporated. 
When confronted with a hijack situation on Flight 93, Glick phoned his wife. She recalls him calmly describing the terrorists and their threats. Glick, a former National Collegiate Judo champion and black belt, told his wife that plans were being made by the passengers and crew to rush the terrorists. As their call ended, Glick told his wife that he loved her and he needed her to be happy. Kristen White Gould, medical journalist, was a freelance medical journalist and published author who loved to travel to historic and cultural sites. Kristen was a patron of the arts and was in the midst of writing a book about medical and scientific com- uh, contributions of Ivy League University graduates. Gould was survived by a daughter. Lauren Katuzzi uh, Grandoklis, sales consultant. On September, 13th, on September 11th, she was returning from her grandmother's funeral in New Jersey to her home in San Rafael, California, to inspire women. When she called her husband from on board the plane, she left a message saying there was a problem on the flight. She conveyed her love for him and asked him to tell her family that she loved them also. Deb? Donald Green, age 52, vice, executive vice president, Safe Flight Instrument Corporation. A licensed pilot who had learned to fly at 14, Donald Green, 52, of Greenwich, Connecticut, was headed to Lake Tahoe on September 11 to join his brothers on a hiking and biking trip. Green held an engineering degree from Brown University and an MBA from Pace University. He survived by his wife and two children. Linda Gronland, manager of environmental compliance. Linda was an attorney and engineer for BMW North America, working as a manager and environmental compliance. Linda was a skilled mechanic with a passion for sports car racing. She was also an accomplished sailor. On, non, on September 11, she was traveling with her boyfriend, Joe DeLuca, there uh, where she and Joe would celebrate her 47th birthday. Richard Guadnau. Richard, 38, dedicated his life to protecting the environment. Rich loved animals and the outdoors, leading him to a career as a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. After celebrating his grandmother's 100th birthday with a family from New Jersey. Toshia Kuge, student at Waseda University, Tokyo, Japan. Toshia was an athlete and scholar. He loved American football and was a linebacker in his first year of college at Waseda University, where he became an engineering student. This was his second visit to the United States. Kuge was traveling alone in order to immerse himself in the English language. Flight 93 was the first leg of Kuge's journey home. Hilda Marchin, retired bookkeeper. After emigrating with her parents from Germany when she was six years old, Hilda settled in Irvington, New Jersey. She worked for 20 years as a fund manager for Waiters and Waitresses Union in Newark. The energetic grandmother, widowed in 1975, was the oldest passenger on the airplane. Markin was traveling aboard Flight 93 to live with her daughter in California for the winter months. Waleska Martinez, age 37. Born in Puerto Rico, Waleska was the backbone of the family, according to her father. In the 13 years with the U.S. Census Bureau, she rose from clerk to automation specialist for the New York region. Martinez loved to cook Italian and Spanish food for friends and family, played tennis and softball, and enjoyed concerts and dancing. 
She's survived by her parents, a brother, and a sister. Nicole Carol Miller, student at West Valley College. Family members of Nicole said she was a Dean's List student at West Valley College in Saratoga, California. She held a part-time waitress job, taught fitness classes at a gym in her hometown of San Jose. Miller made an impulsive decision to fly to the East Coast to vacation with friends. The couple toured Manhattan landmarks, New Jersey boardwalks, and beaches before boarding separate flights to return home. A a thunderstorm on the evening of September 10 forced Miller to reschedule her flight the next morning. Louis Knackle, Operation Director, Distribution Center. Travel was not a routine part of the job for Louis Knackle, the director of a huge New Jersey distribution center for KB Toys. The one-day, last-minute business trip on September 11 took him away from his wife and their home under construction in New Hope. Joey, as his family knew him, was a loving son and a tough, no-nonsense big brother to three siblings. Donald Peterson and his wife, Joan Peterson. They were traveling to to Yosemite National Park for a vacation with Gene's brother and parents. When they arrived at Newark Airport early that morning, they were offered the opportunity to take Flight 93 instead of their scheduled later flight. When the Petersons were married in 1984, each had three children from a previous marriage. Don's personal Bible was recovered at the Flight 93 crash site, along with a a handwritten list of men for whom he was praying. Mark David Rothenberg, business executive, was an intense, successful businessman accustomed to frequent flights to Asia for his importing business. He always flew first class and enjoyed conversing with people on the long international flights. He was from New York and graduated in 1970 from Franklin and Marshall College. Although Mark or Mickey, as he was known to friends and family, worked long hours, he was devoted devoted to his wife and two children. On September 11th, Rothenberg was traveling to Taiwan. Christian Snyder, an arborist, and from Hawaii, was a project manager and certified arborist for the Outdoor Circle, Hawaii's oldest nonprofit professional uh, environmental group. According to her family, the beautification of Hawaii was her profession, her pride, and joy. This was her first time visit to New York City. A connecting flight in San Francisco would have taken Snyder to her home in Hawaii with her husband of just three months. John Talignani, as a bartender and steward at Manhattan's Palm Restaurants for 20 years, John met a fair share of celebrities, but the World War II Army veteran was down to earth, a family man dedicated to his late wife, Selma. John loved following the New York Mets and making pizza for family gatherings. The end of his life was doubly tragic. John and his stepsons boarded separate flights to California to attend a memorial service for John's stepson and their brother, who had been killed in an automobile accident while honeymooning in California. Lastly, Honor Elizabeth Wainino, District Manager, Discovery Channel Stores. Two days before September 11th, she returned from a long-awaited trip to Europe. Now, the Cantonville, Maryland native was on her way to San Francisco for a company-wide business meeting for the Discovery Channel Stores. During the hijacking of Flight 93, she phoned her stepmother, who recalled her words. They're getting ready to break into the cockpit. I have to go. I love you. Goodbye. Elizabeth was survived by her parents and step-parents. 
gone but not forgotten. Pray for the souls, which belonged to a vast number of first victims on the global uh, terror war before uh, being fought against America and the West, which has been going on for nearly 50 years. These were fine human beings who meant something to their friends, families, and colleagues. Now you know a little bit more about them. This portion of the show brought to you by Armis Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend upon social security. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. Speaking of Eb Wilkinson, Eb? Mr. Producer, let's go to our first break. Thanks for joining us today. When we return, special guest, best-selling author Susan Ronald joins us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Ask not! What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Welcome back to our special 9-11 Memorial Show. Now, Eb and I go back uh, into the Wayback Machine to talk with best-selling author Susan Ronald about her new book, The Ambassador, Joseph P. Kennedy at the Court of St. James, published by St. Martin's Press and available everywhere for $29.99. <clears throat> Raised in the United States, our guest Susan has lived in the United Kingdom for some 25 years. Besides her newest book, The Ambassador, Susan has written books about publisher Condé Nast, also Dangerous Women, Florence Gould, Hitler's Art Thief, Hildegard Gerlet, and the Heretic Queen, Elizabeth I. Welcome to Inside Track, Susan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
Sure. My co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and I are very grateful for your appearance here. Yes. I read the wonderful, <laughs> yeah, I read the wonderful <laughs> review of the ambassador about, Ken, about Kennedy family patriarch Joe Kennedy in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago, and I knew we had to speak with you. Uh, I think it's almost bedtime in London, so, so thanks well, for joining us. No, not quite, not quite. I've done uh, interviews at midnight, so I think I'm very happy with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. You're a good sport. Um, uh, Susan, the Wall Street Journal review of the ambassador starts this way. He was manipulative and manipulated. He was a bore and a bore. He had gumption and guile. He was a vicious infighter and a reflexive appeaser. He was imperious in manner and impervious to, to advice. He was a patrifamilias to a political dynasty and a notorious philanderer. He was ambitious and defeatist. Now, Susan, as a kid growing up in the time of JFK, I knew of Joe Kennedy as our ambassador, and the press was mostly kind to him at that time, especially to JFK, as we know. But mm -hmm. this is not a very flattering assessment of the man, is it? <laughs> well, um, uh, when I read the review myself, I went, oh, finally, there's, there's a reviewer who gets it. Uh, <laughs> I had to look half that, the words up. <laughs> I said, oh dear, so I'm not quite sure how this review is going to go, but it's big, and that's good. It's a lot of column inches, let's see. And when when I finished it, I was breathless. Um, I couldn't believe it, and I had to keep telling people, no, I'm not related to the gentleman who wrote the review. Um, but he's he's absolutely right. He was all of those things. But, but as JFK said, he also made it all possible. Um, he... <laughs> He adored his children, and his, his children absolutely adored him, despite all of his faults. Um, JFK certainly knew that he had them. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? Um, well, he, he certainly had a, a very interesting kind of relationship with each of the children, uh, all of them, you know, just slightly different stories. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I couldn't help think about, you know, both his humanity as a father and also some of the things, you know, his, his other uh, not so great uh, traits with him being mm -hmm. away and philandering and so on. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so you've written some great book books about interesting people in the past. What prompted you to write this book, The Ambassador? Okay, well, it's it's really funny when I started when because I was in corporate finance before, um, and my specialty was restoration of historic buildings to alternative use. So I would oh. put together the the, the packages. Um, so if anybody comes to London and they go to um, St Pancras Station, that happened because of the work that I did. So that's oh, the lovely. kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that I, I had been doing for, for a number of years. And when I so-called retired to become a full-time writer, I said, I'm going to have to write about what I know. So what do I know about? Well, I, I know about history. Great, fine, wonderful. How's that going to sell books? I'm really a biographer, I, I keep saying to myself. But whether I am or not, I don't know. Um, and, and I felt, said, well, I only know about power and greed or power, or greed. <laughs> and um, because those were the kinds of people I was working with for over 20 years. <laughs> so, so, you know, when you understand power and what makes people tick and, and all of the things that create a, a greedy type of atmosphere, um, it, it becomes quite a, um, an interesting um, palette, if, if you see what I mean, uh, on which to paint some nice brushstrokes.
So um, Elizabeth I, she was a woman. She was incredibly powerful. I wrote two books about her. I would have written a third book about her, but um, I got hooked into the Gurlitt story in the 20th century. Mm. Um, I understand art history as well. I understand what has, what's what been happening in Europe. And, and a lot of the work that I did was translating to Americans who were working in Europe um, and vice versa. So I write about power and greed. Um, as you can hear from the accent, I, I'm a born American. Um, I married an Englishman. And I figured, well, you know, I really want to write a transatlantic power and greed story. Um, and so essentially... Um, Joe was the first one who popped into my head, although I thought about writing about Gil Wynant, who was the former um, governor of New Hampshire, who became uh, a much-loved ambassador after Joe. But his story was was actually extremely tragic, Um, and uh, he'd fallen in love with Churchill's daughter, Sarah. He had left his wife for her, and Sarah wouldn't marry him. And um, on the day that his book about his time in England um, was published, he shot himself. So I figured that's actually that's that's not a really good end to a story. Whereas even though Kennedy failed, Joe Kennedy failed, his family adored him and he adored his family. But the, the, the humanity that he had for his family didn't seem to stretch beyond um, the, the nine Kennedy children and Rose, of course. Yeah. Although, you know, how you can be such a serial philanderer and, and say you love your wife, I, I, it's something I just don't get. But there we are. That's yeah. me. Uh, Eb? Okay. <laughs> Hey, Susan, we're talking with best-selling author Susan Rowland about, or Ronald, about her new book, The Ambassador. Susan, your book is beautifully written, well annotated, and in the very beginning of your book, you quote Sir Neville Henderson, and he was the ambassador to Germany in the late 30s. He says, the first task of an ambassador is to faithfully interpret the goals of his government to, to the government which he is accredited. The second is to explain, no less accurately, the views and standpoints of the country in which he is stationed to the government of his own country. You wrote, he, meaning Kennedy, valued his own opinion too much to analyze the personalities he would need to assess accurately for the good of the United States and Great Britain. So, in his role as ambassador, did Joseph Kennedy succeed or fail in his mission to represent the U.S.? Joe Kennedy, it was a failure of admission, uh, of his mission from week two, probably day two of the time he arrived. Wow. But certainly week two of the time he was here. And the reason why it was a failure is, well, there are a lot of reasons why. You've got to read the book. You know, everybody has to read the book to really understand. Um, Joe was appointed as ambassador on um, February 18th. He, that's when he was sworn in, 1938. He had wanted to be ambassador since the autumn of 37, but there was already a sitting ambassador in, in London who was very ill. Um, he'd met him back in 1935, and I think he'd had the idea since 1935 that, that he wanted to become ambassador for the good of Joe Jr., and maybe Jack. You know, Jack was also always the also-ran in um, Joe Kennedy's mind. Um, Joe Jr. was the star. He's the one who, from birth, you know, they looked over the crib and said, he's going to be the first Catholic president. 
Um, and, you know, Jack was left to one side because he was a sickly child. He wasn't as, they thought he wasn't as bright as Joe Jr. And they were shocked when they got his IQ test and discovered that Joe Jr. wasn't as bright as, as Jack. So mm. he, he had this idea and he thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get us in the social register. That'll make Rose really proud of me. And, you know, the Kennedy name will be as great as the name of Adams. I'm going to uh, actually create a possibility of being nominated for the presidency in 1940. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He looked at everything just through his own family um, eye, as it were. This is what I'm going to do for me. I'm going to do for Joe Jr., for Rose, etc. For, for the, the girls, they're going to be presented at court, and I'm going to make sure there are not going to be many other Americans who will be presented at court. So he really had it down pat in his head. And as far as his family was concerned, it was a success. But as far as the president was concerned, it was doomed to failure before his appointment. Um, the reason for that is... Joe was manipulative, and he was manipulating the press. Arthur Kroc, who was the New York Times uh, Washington Bureau um, chief, really worked very, very hard for Joe. And in December, on December 7th, I think it was, um, <clears throat> 1937, he basically leaked the idea that Joe was going to be appointed to replace Robert W. Bingham in London. And Roosevelt was furious. Bingham was already back in the States. He was in the hospital. He had an undiagnosed disease, and he died about four days later. Uh, but there was nothing that Roosevelt could do except complain to the New York Times, who said, well, I'm sorry, you know, we were told that this was a ghost story. And and I don't blame the New York Times one, one bit um, at all in the book. What the New York Times didn't know, and certainly what... Roosevelt suspected but didn't know was that Kroc was receiving $25,000 a year in a paycheck from Kennedy. And Kennedy was paying lots of different people to publicize how great a guy he was. Okay? So, you know, this is, this is before he becomes ambassador. So what does Roosevelt do? He delays in appointing Kennedy until February. There was a, a very, very important trade agreement. And back then, that was when there was still a British Empire. So any kind of trade agreement with Britain meant automatically that there was going to be trade with two-fifths of the world. And so, and the biggest problem was that there was um, a, a, a great dispute over the film rights and, and movie rights in Britain for American movies. Now, Joe had, had come from Hollywood. He was a big Hollywood producer. He made a lot of money on the merger of his company with RKO and Pathé. And so he was actually not a bad choice because he could put together this trade agreement. He was a very, very astute businessman. And, and yet Roosevelt delayed for two months. And I think Roosevelt had this, this, this desire for him to fail in the trade agreement and to go around him, just like Churchill, Roosevelt had his own ways and means of getting to people. Um, and he was going to use and abuse Kennedy. Um, but the fact that he, was, he planned to do that, Joe could have still succeeded. What happened, though, instead was something called the Anschluss, or Germany invading um, Austria, happened 10 days after Joe arrived in London. 
Okay. He, he arrived in London on March the 1st. He was uh, he presented his credentials um, on the 8th of March. And two days later, of course, Germany goes into Austria or Hitler goes into Austria. On the day before Hitler goes into Austria, Joe's at a party at the German embassy welcoming the new German ambassador. And he tells Joachim von Ribbentrop, who had been the old German ambassador to, to London, he says to him, don't worry, Joachim, it's going to be fine because America's not going to go into this war. We have no place in this war. If you want to take over all of Europe, that's fine. Wow. Okay? So that's bad enough. But then he decides that he wants to announce American policy a week later about the Anschluss in London. And he actually he has a conversation with Cordell Hull, who is the Secretary of State, and also several other people within the State Department, on um, March 15th. And he says, well, you know, I don't want you people in Washington to be announcing this. This is my job. And Hull disagrees. They have a shouting match to the point where Hull gets hoarse. And Joe Kennedy finally screams at him, shut up. Now, you don't do that to your boss. Secretary of State is his boss. Okay? Um, you don't do that in 1938 to your boss in, in, in an environment that is entirely new to you. So basically, Hull decided uh, on March 17th that he was going to make the announcement, and if Kennedy tried to make the announcement, he would be immediately recalled. Boy. So from the, from then on, they were enemies. So Kennedy was born in the Democratic Party machine of Boston. Uh, yes, his second father, generation American. Yeah, his father, P.J. Kennedy, was part of that machine. How yep. did P.J. shape and influence Joe? Oh, um, I, I, I think I use um, a very small example. I mean, P.J., if, if anybody has read um, Edward O'Connor's The Last Hurrah, I think that explains mm. better than any other book or even seen the movie with Spencer Tracy. That explains the importance of the local uh, political boss. Um, these, this was a shadow government on a local level. If you had a problem, you went to see the local political boss. He would give you uh, whiskey to drown your sorrows in. He would find you little jobs. He, he, that, that political boss is the person who would make sure that you were all right, in exchange for which you voted. Sometimes you voted as many as 100 times. Yeah. Um, but you voted. <laughs> in yeah. one Whis election. Whiskey and absolution. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and they were adored. Okay. Uh, and basically, um, what ended up happening is, of course, Kennedy, uh, PJ, would get amount, an amount of money from the Democratic Party. The same thing happened with uh, Republican bosses, local bosses. They would get an amount of money to um, give largesse to their population who, who followed them and what have you. And they, they were actually very important in the political machine. They made people think that the Democratic Party or the Republican Party really cared about them, and they made them want to vote. So um, it, it was crooked, but it was an interesting, um, benevolent way of being crooked, if you see what I mean. Sure. So, so, but PJ had a lot of style and he had a lot of heart. Um, Joe didn't. Um, Joe just understood that his father became 
moderately wealthy out of being a political machine boss in Ward 2 in East Boston. Joe understood that his father was sending him to Protestant schools so that he could blend in, but it gave him this tremendous chip on his shoulder um, about being Catholic, about how Catholics were frowned upon, um, how being of Irish descent was looked down upon uh, from the Boston Brahmin point of view. And having gone to the Boston uh, Latin School, which was a Protestant um, private school uh, as, a, as a high school, and then going on to Harvard, he always felt that he was second class. And yet he still sent his own sons at, uh, to Protestant schools. And certainly um, both boys ended up at Harvard as well. So he, he l- tried to learn from his father, but he didn't have his father's empathy for strangers. Well... Um, they, which is, which is bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, you talk about yeah. the empathy for strangers. Uh, he wasn't, uh, so to speak, a faithful husband. Uh, uh, Gloria yeah. Swanson, Marion Davis comes to mind. Yeah. Columnist Hedda Hopper outed him. How did he manage to get to where he did and stay married? I mean, well, you know, um, what did Rose say it, about all this? Well, Rose said nothing, um, effectively. What's what's fascinating about Rose is, um, aside from uh, Doris uh, Kearns Goodwin, um, I think everybody who's written about Joe has basically been uh, a man. Um, I was interested to read her book, which was written a lot of years ago. Um, and she she's the one who came closest to understanding what happened. Um Rose was pregnant with her fourth child, Kathleen, um, in 1920, when um, she'd had enough of Joe's being a womanizer. I mean, she'd see him walking down the street hugging, hugging some girl, you know. I mean, he wasn't hiding it at all. And she left him, left him with the children, the three children. And she's, she's very pregnant at the time. And she goes home to Daddy, who's honey fits or... Uh, John Fitzgerald, who had been twice mayor of Boston, he had been a state senator, he had been a congressman, um, and, you know, he, he looked down on, on PJ and Joe in any event, um, but he finally agreed to letting Rose marry, marry him. She's there for two weeks. What Rose doesn't realize, of course, is at the time, he's, her father is about to run for mayor again, but he has to withdraw from the campaign because he'd been caught with a lady called Toodles. I love Toodles. <laughs> um, and it's, it's decided that he's got to get Rose back into the home. And he says to her, men do this. If you're a good Catholic girl, you put up with it. Your job is to raise the family. And she went home. She knew all about everything, and she went home. Because as far as she was concerned, and this is what made her so devout as well, I believe, as far as she was concerned, this was her duty. She would confess on a weekly, daily, or whatever basis. Um, I mean, Bishop Spellman, who ended up being Cardinal Spellman, was her private confessor in New York. And, and basically, any time she had terrible thoughts about Joe or about you know his womanizing, she would confess, she would be made to feel better, and she would understand this isn't her, this is him. And that was it. 
Wow. Okay. Jackie, Susan, wouldn't put, Jackie wasn't going to put up with it with JFK, but she did. Susan, let me let me move. Uh, this is Bruce again. Let me move back over to his time as ambassador. <laughs> you mm-hmm. suggest that Kennedy was uh, relatively easy to bamboozle. Um, yeah. He had lunch with pro-German isolationists Charles and Ann yeah. Lindbergh amid the Munich crisis of September 38. Talk mm-hmm. about the reaction. You talk about the the yelling match. That, that I think that's just you know I love politics. I love political <laughs> politics uh, or historical <laughs> politics. Talk about mm. the reaction from Cordell Hull at that time uh, and the U.S. State uh, Department of State uh, and his other miscues. I, I just can't imagine that he would have survived that. Well, he survived because Roosevelt wanted to keep him in place. And what, the, the, the thing isn't about the jelly matches because they were, they were frequent. Um, I mean, the uh, Ike's diaries are, are quite amazing in terms of the number of times there are complaints about Kennedy. Um, Ho basically stopped talking to Kennedy by September 38 after that last shouting match. But, and he wanted to get rid of him. Roosevelt, on the contrary, didn't want Kennedy back in America because he was battling with an isolationist con- Congress. He knew that there was going to be a war. There was no doubt in his mind. Um, and he was right, of course. Um, and what he didn't want Kennedy to do is to get all of his press buddies together back in Washington, okay, where they could start churning out the idea that it, this isn't a war that involved America. It didn't matter that the Japanese were becoming friendly with the Germans, you know, the, all this sort of thing. Kennedy did not have the big picture. What, what he believed in, and this is what angered Hull so much, was his ability to do the deal. And this, is, this, you will, this will sound familiar to you, I'm sure. Guys who do deals feel that if they're able to come to an agreement with somebody, that it's a deal done and they move on. Sure. That's not, that is absolutely not politics, okay? Kennedy firmly believed by, well, it was actually by June 38, that if he met with Hitler, and he actually said this to Hull as well, if he met with Hitler, he could save the world from the war. Okay? Now, that's an egotist, isn't it? Did, did, did Joe Kennedy, and we've seen this uh, with, with other presidents as well, um, mm-hmm. did Joe Kennedy believe that uh, prosperity uh, would end up keeping the world out of war? Uh, yes, he did. Um, that, that's, that's, I suppose, the end thought. Joe, like a lot of people, I mean, this goes back to Henry VIII in a way and, and Elizabeth I, Joe did not believe that war was good for business. And generally speaking, war is not good for business, okay? Um, He had this big thing about Germany being in a war economy, and he had the answer to how to turn it around from a war economy. Germany didn't want to be turned around from a war economy. Um, Actually, my next book um, that I'm about to deliver to my publisher is all about how Germany was rearming from 1920, okay? So... He didn't understand the history. There's only one person in the Kennedy clan that understood the history, and that was Jack, because he had been so ill for so long. He was the one that was doing all the historical reading. He was the one that was putting together why there were problems in, in the mandatory Palestine, which is now Israel and Jordan, 
and why all of these things were happening there. He, he really was the reader and the thinker in the family and, and a very fine thinker at that. So Joe wasn't listening to him. Joe was listening to Joe. And when um, Hull said he couldn't deal with him anymore, they got um, the chap, this chap, Moffat, I can't remember his first name now all of a sudden. Um, they got Moffat, who was in charge of Europe, basically within the State Department, to deal with him. Moffat couldn't deal with him. So then they got someone else to deal with him. And, and finally, by, um, actually by June 1939, when the royal family, uh, George VI and Queen, Queen Elizabeth came to the States for five days, George VI and um, Roosevelt had a chat, and it was agreed that they had to go around Joe. They were going to leave him in place for a very good reason. Joe was not to come back to America. He was viewed as a real threat. And Claire Booth Luce, who was also one of his lovers, um, had made him that threat as early as May 1938. She was telling him he should be president. And he had to make himself go back to America frequently. Well, of course, that's not his job to go back to America frequently. Hey, Susan, I hate to do this. We've got 31 seconds left. So, uh, you know, insiders, I hope you've enjoyed today's 9-11 memorial (laughs) and our chat with author Susan Ronald on her new book, The Ambassador, which Bruce and I recommend for your reading. Join us next Saturday when Bruce and I will reunite in the studio for another special edition of Inside Track. So until next Saturday for Bruce, for me, for Inside Track, and along with Susan, thanks for joining us. Wishing you all a very pleasant afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the the cities and counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911.